0: I have to say it didn't take long Christmas morning. Didn't take long, and it it didn't take any training on our part. We didn't have to teach our kids certain things. We didn't have to sit down and and help them understand the intricacies of of one particular item, and that item is justice. (laughs) Any of you parents ever have to deal with issues of justice in your home? Things like, wait a minute. They got one, two, three, four, and I got one. No, Susie does really well at that and making sure there's some things there. But it just doesn't take long. That's mine or hey, you know, the, the, the first thing that breaks, which is about an hour after it's opened and then there's this whole argument over who broke it and who should have to pay for it and who should, you know, all this stuff and it just doesn't take long. And I'd love to say that it took Susie and I a, a, an opportunity to train them to be that way, but there was no training involved. It came very naturally. And when we think of issues of justice and when we think of issues of fairness, it's inbred in us, isn't it? It's just part of who we are, part of what we look for. Now, now, why would one of my children get upset because of a perceived injustice, why would they get infuriated and almost go into a rage at their brother and sister? Not that that narrows down who it was. Uh, <laughs> without some sort of sense of justice, and the reason we go there is somehow we think that our rights and our needs and our things that are that we own have been violated. And again, that's not trained; that's in inborn in us. And Satan has tried to use that in so many different ways to twist it and to use it for his purposes and to use it to divide people. But justice, as we, we started looking at a couple weeks ago before Christmas, justice and righteousness is one of the attributes of God. And the source of justice is God. The source of the perversions of that justice and how we use it for personal gain is Satan. So this morning we want to finish up talking about the attribute of God's righteousness righteousness. The attribute of his justice. And looking at how that works itself out. Because there are times where we are rightfully angered at sin. That we are, we are frustrated because we don't see the justice and the right, rightness in something. As we, over the last two, three weeks, witnessed what unfolded in Newtown, Connecticut. And we should be angry. And we should want justice. And we should want rightness there. Friend of, a couple friends of mine that some of you know, Rob and Amy Carr, they, they went here many years ago, just got back from, from visiting their adopted son. The, the problem is, the, the country that he's in, Guatemala, has not released him to them. And they, they signed the adoption and they, they had everything worked out years ago, four or five years ago. And right as he was about to join their family, the government, because of some political wranglings, put an end to it. And now the best they get is a week or two, uh, a year to go down and visit and see their son. And a few weeks ago they came back and it was heart-wrenching to read their, their tears and their frustration with a system that has taken the life of this little boy and hung him in the balance of a political, uh, political war. And it's not right and we look at those situations and it is in it is unjust. We say, what do we do about that? What is God doing about that? But God is doing something about that. It may not be on our timetable. It may not be how we perceive it. But He is executing righteousness and justice. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at the first part of that. We looked at God's righteousness. And we defined God's righteousness, meaning that God always does what is right, always conforms to His law, and is Himself the final standard of what is right. It's the idea of having a standard and living up to that standard. Well, the only possible standard is God, right? And the only one that can live up to God's standard is God. And so that's righteousness. God is always right He is always just. God's justice, then, is an expression of His righteousness that God always deals with people according to whether or not they've met the absolute standard. Whether or not they've met His standard. And He deals with them accordingly, good or bad. And so you see that definition in your notes. Much like correcting a test. Some things get checked off, some things are okay. But God always is just. And we looked at two rules... Rule number one, God is always just and right. And rule number two, if He appears to us to be unjust or wrong, refer to rule number one. It's your error, not His. And we we talked at length about that and what that means. I love an illustration of that in our understanding of God's righteousness because in our human sense, we don't see how He can be right sometimes. We look at a microcosm of a situation and we're like, that's not right. That's not just, much like kids can do. We're we're the same. We're God's children. And and think about this. Imagine if you were were able to view a courtroom proceeding. And you were able to just see a camera feed. And so you have a screen, but you have no audio. And so you have no clue what's being said, the testimony being said. You only have a visual. You can see what witnesses come up. You can't see the interaction between the lawyers and the judge. And and so then the, the whole The whole situation unfolds in front of you. You're seeing it, but you're not hearing it. And you get to the end of the trial, and you see the verdict, and a verdict of guilty is handed out. And you in front of your screen watching this just go nuts. You go ballistic. And you're like, I can't believe they came to that decision. That is so unfair. I can't believe. A little crazy, right? Why? Why? Because you only have the visual. You only have a a, a portion of the information needed. You don't have the whole story. And as we look at God and as we look at His justice and His righteousness, we have a glimpse of what He knows. We have a glimpse of what He understands. And so when we shake our fist at God and say, that wasn't right, how dare you react that way? It's just like yelling at the screen when we had just a glimpse of what actually happened. And so God is always right, and God is always just. He always conforms to His law. The point number two, which we want to delve into today, it's really a much, a much more difficult subject. A subject that you may not hear, hear taught a lot on a Sunday morning. You, you may not hear people talk about a lot as something to glory in, but that's the, the subject of the wrath of God. God's justice requires that evil be dealt with. God's justice requires that evil be dealt with. And that's what we see in Scripture is God's wrath. God's wrath. How many of you like a wrathful God? A couple of you, okay? I hope by the end of today, more of you will raise your hand. But but it's hard because we. why don't we like a wrathful God? What if it's towards me? It's like when we say that's not fair. You know, I've never had, had one of my kids or someone say that's not fair when they didn't get a punishment they deserved. It's always when they didn't get something they, good that they thought they wanted. And the same is true of God. We, we only want a wrathful God when it's against someone else. We don't want a wrathful God against us. But this is a huge issue today a huge issue that is plaguing our society today because there's a whole group in Christian circles that are moving toward God can't be wrathful. And if God is not a God of wrath, then there's certain things that He won't do. And so we see the idea of eternal punishment for sin being challenged in Christendom today. We have a book called Love Wins that came out last year that created this stir because the idea was God is love. God is not wrathful. And so eventually all will come to him. That's not scriptural. Because love requires wrath. Love requires justice. Justice requires love. And so this morning we ask the question, would you rather have an unjust God? Would you rather have an unjust God? And as we go through our points of God's wrath, I, I want you on each of the points to think through, well, would it be better if God wasn't just? Would it be better if he wasn't righteous? If he was arbitrary? Or would it be better... Is it better that he's just? Is that part of who he is and who he must be? Tozer wrote, "...the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciousness of of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unheeded. Sobering words by a theologian who was watching this happen. Watching people abandon the idea of God's wrath. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 7. Psalm chapter 7. There's many verses we can look at, but one of the key passages we'll look at this morning is Psalm chapter 11, starting at verse 11. Psalm chapter 7. The psalmist here is, is describing God in some ways that we see throughout the psalms. But he's describing an understanding of God that is important for us as we study God's attributes, as we as a church say we, we need to know God and who He is. Part of it is His view towards sin and His response towards sin. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge. There's the righteousness we're talking about, the, the The attribute that we're talking about. He has a standard. He lives to that standard. He holds others to that standard. God is a righteous God and a God who feels indignation every day. Look at that word indignation there. For us, it means sort of an annoyance, right? But the usage here is one of a deep wrath. Wrath. Strong displeasure. Anger. Strong anger. And so right from the start of this passage, we're like, whoa, wait a minute. God is a God who feels wrath, strong displeasure every day? No, that's not the God I want. Because we're constantly trying to form God in our image instead of the other way around. And Scripture says, no, He's a God of wrath. He's a God that feels displeasure and anger every day. Well, why? And the the passage goes on. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. And then the the culminating verse. I will give to the Lord the thanks due His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And the psalmist here is struggling with those that are evil, those that have not repented, those that are causing harm to others. And in his struggle, he's proclaiming that God is a righteous God, a God that feels wrath, indignation, a God that will deal with evil, and that ends up in worship to that God. Wrath, we put a definition of wrath in your notes. The wrath of God is His right and just eternal detestation and punishment of all unrighteousness. I love that word, detestation. Hates it. He abhors it. Detests it. The wrath of God is His right and just eternal detestation and punishment of all unrighteousness. That which does not meet His standards. So the wrath of God is is God's just answer to sin. His just punishment to sin. If we say, well, we don't want to talk about a God of wrath, keep in mind that the wrath of God is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. It's one of the the largest topics when it comes to who is God. Right up there with love, and the two go hand in hand, as we'll see in in a few minutes. Wrath is is also not an attribute of God in and of itself. Justice is the attribute of God. Wrath is the response of justice. One of the ways we know that is, remember the attributes of God are things that have existed in God from all eternity? Well, the wrath of God did not come about until sin came about. It was God's answer to sin. The attribute is God's justice and righteousness. We cannot separate wrath from that, though, because He is just he answers sin. So some, some ideas about wrath, some points about wrath. The first is sin is rebellion against God's authority and cannot be ignored. Sin is rebellion against God's authority and cannot be ignored. Not will not be ignored. It cannot be ignored. If God is unchanging, if he is, is, um, if there's a unity to His attributes, He must deal with sin. In verse 17 of the passage that we just read, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness. And so the psalmist here is summing up his answer to sin, his wrath, his punishment to sin, and he calls it God's righteousness. And in fact, he he says due to His righteousness, which means because He is righteous, He must respond this way. Sin is rebellion against God's authority and cannot be ignored. See, the act of sin is saying, I know better than God. My way is better than God. What I want to do is more important than what God wants me to do. What is that saying about his reign? What is that saying about his authority? It's just directly in the face of that, isn't it? What happens, those of you that are parents... What happens if your son or daughter comes to you and in your face says, I will not do what you say, and there's nothing you can do to make me do it? Should that require a response? (laughs) Why? It's disobedience. disobedience. What happens if you let that go? We have a five, six, and eight-year-old. What happens if I let it go now? All kinds of answers. I'm going to assume you said it gets worse. It gets worse because what am I doing by not answering it? I'm teaching them that I am not in authority, I do not reign, and their behavior is acceptable. See, parents, we teach by what we don't punish just as much as we do by what we do punish. And so if God does not respond to sin, which is a direct rebellion, it's an in-your-face, I know better than you. If He does not respond to that, then we, He is saying it's okay to challenge His authority. He is saying I am not king. He must respond to it because it is an affront to His standards. He displays and defends His righteousness by dealing with sin. I will give thanks... I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness. Due to His righteousness, He is a righteous judge and punishes sin. You cannot be sovereign and allow sin to go unpunished. And we know from a few weeks ago that God is sovereign. He is King of all. His ways are supreme. And so His righteousness must punish sin. Second point under God's wrath is God in holiness and righteousness always abhors sin and reacts against it. God in holiness and righteousness always abhors sin and reacts against it. When we think of wrath, often the question is one of, of degree. Well, isn't that a little bit of an extreme reaction of God to sin? Well, isn't sin an extreme reaction against God's sovereignty, against His righteousness, against His standard? See, God's wrath means that He intensely hates all sin. He loathes evil. He loathes what is impure. We need to get that, church. We need to get just how much sin grates against an almighty, righteous, holy God. Because unless we understand the depth of the offense... We have no impetus to, to, to work on it. We have no sense of His grace, of His mercy, of His love. So many times when we are caught in sin, what keeps us in sin is we just don't see the seriousness of it. But God does. God does, because it's an affront to His righteousness. Divine wrath is the necessary reaction of a holy God who hates all that is contrary to His righteous nature. Verses 11 and 12 out of the Psalm 7 passage, you see the depth of God's hatred of sin, of His abhorrence of sin. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. This isn't a hands-off saying, okay, you know, do your own thing. You can can feel the consequences of your sin. No, this is a God who says, I will deal with this. My sword's ready. My bow's ready. I'm indignant at what you're doing. He will always react against sin. Maybe not in ways we see. Maybe not in the timetable we desire when when it's others. But He will always deal with sin. Flip over, keep your finger in the psalm passage, flip over to Romans 1. Romans 1. Paul has a lot to say about God's justice and the effects of sin. Romans 1, we'll look at verse 18 and then jump to 22. For the wrath of God... There's that word again. I guess guess we have to use it. It's in Scripture. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So their unrighteousness, their sin, is a direct affront to God. It's suppressing His truth. It's suppressing who He is. Jumping to verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Catch verse 24. Therefore God gave... Did you see that word Gave. I would underline that, understand God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. We see God's wrath, but we see that God intentionally deals with the sin. Gave is not a hands-off approach. Gave is a hands-on approach. He gave them over to a depraved mind. And His righteousness punishes sin punishes sin in psalm 18 8 we see a a description of just how much god hates sin why the wrath comes so strongly smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth glowing coals flamed forth from him as the psalmist describes god angry at sin and and The imagery there is sort of a flaring of the nostrils. Have you seen a horse do that? They're getting angry. They're about to, or a bull rather, they're about to charge and the nostrils are flaring and and stuff's coming out. And that's the the word picture here of he's using of, of God when he's viewing sin and unrighteousness, things that do not meet his standards. Sin offends God. Never forget that. Some have argued over the years as the church has dealt with this doctrine. Well, doesn't that make God a little mean? Doesn't it make him evil that he would be wrathful? I mean, because we as humans, when we think of wrath, we think evil, right? Because what's true of us when we, when we are in wrath? Why is it evil for us? Okay, we have no righteousness to compare it to. That's a great point. What else? How, how are we usually wrathful? In defense of our own rights. In defense of our own rights? And, and do we do it in a, in a calm way? Not, not, not that God is calm, but he has emotion in it, but do we do it in a out of control way or an in control way? We're usually out of control. In fact, when we use the word wrath for another person, that means they're out there, man. Stay out of their way. They're, they're, going, they're going nuts. And so that's why I think we're scared to call God a wrathful God. Because we ascribe our own emotions to God. God is not out of control. God is not arbitrary. But God does have wrath to sin. See, indifference to sin is, is a moral blemish. If God ignored sin, that would be an, a moral blemish. Not His wrath. And so people just twist the whole thing. Well, God's upset at sin. That's a moral blemish. No! That's what a righteous God must do. Would we rather Him look with the same satisfaction or dissatisfaction on everything people have done? Would we rather have an unjust God? Packer writes this, Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Think about that for a minute. If God didn't care about the difference between right and wrong, would He be a good God? Would a God that put no distinction between the beasts of history, the Hitlers and the Stalins, and His own saints be morally praiseworthy and perfect? Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. So next time someone argues with you, well, how can you believe God is a God of wrath? He's mean. Say, how could you believe He's not? How could you believe He's unjust? But we have to understand some things about God's wrath. God's wrath is never vindictive. It's never vindictive. It never has revenge as its as its ultimate goal. God's wrath is a response, a just response to our sin. It is in line with our sin. It's not overboard. God's wrath is also never lacks self-control. It's never out of a bad temper. Anyone here ever ever struggle with temper? No, no, no raise right your hands. Anyone ever struggle with temper when, when disciplining? Because when 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 our sovereignty as parents is challenged, the hairs on the back of our neck go up, the ears start to, to get red, and the nose starts to twitch, because we're like, how dare you? And we respond out of vindictiveness, out of a lack of self-control, out, out of everything that is not God's wrath. So parents, I would encourage you to learn from God's wrath. Our discipline should never be vindictive. It should never have as its goal, I'm just going to punish you. I'm going to punish you as hard as I can. It's not an appropriate use of punishment, of discipline. It's not discipline. It doesn't teach anything. But that is not God's wrath. Our discipline should never be out of lack of self-control. In fact, mom and dad, if, if, if you're in the midst of anger, and I know, I know kids press buttons, I, I know that the anger is there, and it's sometimes easy to respond out of anger, that's the time to step back and say, son and daughter, we're going to deal with this in a few minutes. I'm not going to deal with this when I'm angry. Because when you and I are angry, anger, that's not a reflection of God's justice. And so take the time. Take the time to make sure your kids know why you're disciplining. Take the time to make sure they know that you have a reason and you have a a biblical reason for doing this. Because if you discipline out of wrath, human wrath, out of a lack of self-control, out of a bad temper, you actually do damage. God's wrath is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble. It's never those things that human anger so often is. Little little boy one time wouldn't eat his vegetables. Not that that ever happens either. But. So mom sent him to bed saying, God is angry at you. Soon after the boy went to bed, a storm came over, and it was a violent storm, and there's lightning and thunder, and the mom looked into the boy's room, hoping to comfort him, thinking he'd be terrified. When she opened the door, she found him looking out the window, muttering, man, such a fuss over a few vegetables. And we see a mom that had taught her boy a human view of God's wrath instead of a just view of God's wrath. Don't use God as your weapon. Understand that His wrath is His justice. His response to sin. It is a right and necessary action to a moral evil. Third point, which just goes right with that. Because wrath is a just response to our sin, we have earned it. Because wrath is a just response to our sin, we have earned it. Don't blame God for His punishment. Don't we do that? Things happen, we're like... And we blame God. We blame God for so much, but can we blame God for something that we've earned? Something we've deserved? In the middle of that Psalm 7 passage again, verses 14-16, through "...behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief." and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Do you see where the psalmist is going with this? He did it to himself. He did it to himself. Early on in our marriage, I I had difficulties understanding how to get to the gas station in time before the car ran out of gas. And after a while, it was the weirdest thing. My wife wasn't that sympathetic. She's like, did you see the gauge going down? Yeah. Did you see the light on? Yeah. Thought I could make it. I'm an optimist. (laughs) And and there wasn't a lot of sympathy when she came out to pick me up, like six or seven times. This is early on. Hasn't happened in a long time. Learned that lesson. Why wasn't there a lot of sympathy? I earned it. (laughs) I deserved it. Keep in mind, when we think of God's wrath, it's a just response. We've earned it. Remember what James says in James 1, 14 and 15? Because each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death. And James says it starts with our own desire that we give time to. We give energy to, and it grows, and it ends up in death. And that's really point number four. God's wrath ultimately leads to eternal punishment of the soul for all who do not believe. God's wrath ultimately leads to eternal punishment of the soul for all who do not believe. Romans 6.23, a verse we talked about two weeks ago. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is a verse about justice, about righteousness. The wages of sin is death. The just, deserved response to sin is death. But the free gift of God, which is where God's love comes into this, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. God's justice demands that for those that have not believed, that have not seen the forgiveness of Christ, the saving work of Christ on the cross, that have not put their trust in that, God's wrath demands that they spend eternity being punished for that sin. It's not an easy thing to talk about, but it's important that we understand that. Because of point three, which is what we talked about at Christmas God has provided what He demands, though. that Point number D there could be so depressing. Well, okay, so we're all doomed to death because we all have sinned and we all deserve that. But number three is is so important. God has provided what He demands. God's love and grace provide one to bear God's wrath in our place. And that's in the person of Jesus Christ. So many times we try to separate God's love and God's wrath, God's love and His justice, because we don't understand how both can be true. But God is one. He is always all of His attributes. He is always just. He is always loving. The two go together. One author wrote, they're they're like two sides of an arch. You take away either side, and what happens to the arch? It falls apart. And so to understand how to resolve them, we have to understand two things: the unity of God, and that Christ bears God's wrath in our place. the unity of God, that He is both together. It is a loving justice. It is a just love. Psalm 116:5 says, "Gracious is the Lord and righteous. our God is merciful." And so we see God's mercy and His righteousness, His love and His righteousness together. He's not a schizophrenic God. He's not trying to decide, well, okay, today is it going to be justice or is it going to be love? Depends on how much I like them today. How much have they prayed? Did they do their quiet time today? Okay, maybe we'll do love. No, that's not it at all. He is always both. They do not quarrel with each other. Because if God loves us, He will discipline us. If He loves us, He will deal with sin. And the opposite is true too. If God deals with sin in our lives, it's because He loves us. If love does not include justice, it's just sentimentality. Think about that. If if I just give someone everything they want, Because I love them? Is that loving? No. No, I'm creating a monster. Love must include justice. Making someone comfortable for the moment, feeding their selfishness is not right or loving. And so God is both loving and just. But it's because he bears God's wrath in our place. This morning we sang at the cross, we see God is love and God is just. And so we see that sin must be dealt with. A righteous God cannot ignore sin. But a loving God says, I want relationship with you. And so I will provide a way to deal with that sin, to take the penalty, to pay that price, In Romans 3.23, we see all of this wrapped up in a package. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So we see the sin. We see that we've fallen short of God's standard. But then we see the gift and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And if you remember, the word propitiation is one that stands in the place of God's wrath. God's wrath must happen against sin. He is a righteous God. We've already established that, right? God is unrighteous if he doesn't deal with sin. So his answer is, I will send Jesus Christ, and he will stand between you and him, and he will take God's wrath on himself while he hung on the cross. At that moment when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth trembles and shakes because at that moment, God's wrath is being poured out on His Son in ways we can't even begin to understand. But in ways that show that God is just, sin is being taken care of, but God is incredibly loving to provide a way that you and I don't have to be the ones that deal with that. If we will only believe in Him. The infinite, almighty The perfect, the I am, hung and bore our sins and took God's wrath. Justice says the unrepentant sinner must die. But justice also says the repentant sinner must live because the sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. God is just and God is love. I'd like to leave you today with three implications of this doctrine. You know We've waded through it, and probably you're thinking, man, God's wrath, thanks, needed that at the end of the year. Good way to start next year. But three implications that I'd like to leave you with as we move forward. What should our response be to this important doctrine? The first is, love the standard, detest sin. Love the standard of God's righteousness, detest sin. Copy God. Seek to imitate him. What he loves, love. What he hates, hate. We see this in a number of verses. Romans 12.9 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Abhor. Get rid of it. Detest it. What is evil. Cling to what is good. In Psalm 97.10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. And I challenge you with that same phrase, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. We see that in verse after verse. But the challenge is, how lightly do we take sin? How how lightly do we take even our observance of sin? Now, we might understand, well, okay, I understand if I sin, I get God's wrath. But what about even our view of viewing of sin? What about watching sin on TV? What about going to a movie and watching sin? What about seeing sin around us? Does it turn our stomachs? Does it turn our stomachs? Now our response we can talk about, because that doesn't mean we go around you know, putting people down that are sinning or you know, killing them or anything like that. But it should turn our stomachs in a way that it turns God's stomach. And, and God detests it so much that He sent His Son to be the answer. And so our answer when we see sin isn't to, to condemn those people to hell. It's to say, man, they need Jesus. They need Christ. I need to pray for them. I mean, let's put this in another, another sense. If I am faithful to my wife, and I am, and she comes home and she sees me and she sees that the movies that I enjoy the most are all about people having an affair's, What, what is she thinking? Throw out the TV. Okay, thank you. Yes. Throw out the TV. Why? It's just a, it's just a show. But that's revealing a little bit of what I'm drawn to. Now, if every time that happens on TV, she hears me say and tells the kids, that is wrong. That is sin. We never, we should never do that. We should pray for those that do. What is that communicating? It's communicating a whole different thing. But don't we communicate the same thing to God when we just watch sin happening? When we enjoy watching sin happening and it doesn't turn our stomach at all? And he's like, that's not my character. That's not who I am. Phil and I were playing golf this week and we're out playing golf and we were paired with two people we don't know. And every time a a girl would jog by in the park, he, he would make these comments about her being cute or whatever, and the man's married. It turned my stomach. He's been married multiple times, and maybe that's part of it. Sin should always turn our stomachs. And I'm concerned for the church, and I'm concerned for the church in America, I'm concerned for our church because we tolerate so many things that are Sinful. Why do we enjoy watching them? Because in some ways we can participate without doing it and we can be guilt-free. And sin creeps in and Satan's hold creeps in and we are not honoring the holiness and the righteousness of God. Men, I challenge you to step up and lead your homes in this. Your wives will love you for it. Lead your home and say, we shouldn't be watching this. Lead your home and say, we should, we should be praying about this. Take the initiative, men. And let's build homes that stand for God's righteousness and God's holiness. Young men that are here that don't have families, you're not off the hook. This is the time you start those habits by what you watch on TV, by what you see on the Internet, by what you comment about with your friends, by your status updates on Facebook. What are you saying about God's holiness, about His righteousness? Start now defending God's righteousness in your own heart. Sin should turn our stomachs. Including all of those acceptable sins. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. I encourage you to read it. It will challenge you and hit you between the eyes. As he deals with things like anger and irritability and coveting and grumbling. Oh no, let's not include that one. And all those things that are just as offensive to a righteous God, that fall just as short from his righteousness, but they're acceptable. Village family, we need to be a church that steps up this year and says, God has a righteous standard. Let's hold to that. Let's hold to that. Let nothing stand in the way of that. Two other takeaways. Leave vengeance to God. Romans 12.19 said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jerry mentioned this one when he said, Well, we're not the ones that righteousness has been, been defied. It's right. It's God's wrath, not our wrath. And this is how we balance the first one. We don't, We pray for people. We pray and show them Jesus. But it's God that is the final judge. You may have things in your life that have been terribly unjust. And you are angry about, and it's turning into bitterness, and it is controlling you. It's time to turn that over to God. God is just. God is righteous. You can trust Him. And finally, what we saw in the last verse, verse 17 of the psalm passage, Praise God for both his justice and deliverance from the wrath to come. When we think of God's wrath, when we think of his justice, that should make us worship him. Because would you rather have an unjust God? Would you rather have a God who didn't care about what was right and what was wrong? No. So we worship him because he is always just. He is always right. And always deals with us accordingly. We worship Him because by the blood of Jesus Christ we can spend eternity with Him in His glory, in His glorious presence if we will believe in Him and accept Him. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray that this morning we would come to a better understanding of Your wrath. That it is not arbitrary. It is not out of control. But It's a necessary right response to rebellion. And Lord, I pray we fear you for that. I pray that that causes us to come on our knees to you and worship you, to obey you. Lord, I pray that we would have your heart and abhor sin in any form and love good. That we would show ourselves to be your sons and your daughters by doing so in Jesus' name.